You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA, reporting to you almost live from the second annual NCQA Health Innovation Summit at the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. If you're a fan of this podcast or you have feedback, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. On this episode, I have clips from four of the nearly 20 interviews that I conducted over the course of our three-day summit. I had the privilege to chat with healthcare leaders, tech gurus, and for the most part, people much smarter and wiser than I am in the realms of digital quality, health equity, and digital transformation. All of these interviews will be offered to you in full in the coming weeks. A reminder, of course, as always, to read through this episode's description to garner information about these guests, and please also click through all the links that you find in order to find out more about our discussions. But for now, please join me in listening through just a bit of four of these in-depth quality conversations. Starting off, my talk with the chief AI engineer at Elevance Health, Parker Holcomb. Parker's work sits at the intersection of fire, F-H-I-R, fire, and machine learning. At NCQA's 2023 Health Innovation Summit, he's been in a session titled Building Trust in Clinical Data for Value-Based Care. Parker stands at the forefront of data quality, constantly seeking to perfect data quality standards, and all of this towards closing gaps in health equity. So how do professionals and technologists align the movement toward digital health transformation into the direction of value-based care. We can talk about data quality. We can talk about, you know, the different data quality dimensions we want to, you know, uh, measure or how we're going to use it. Um, But it's really about trust. Do I trust this data for blank? And trust is not universal. I may trust you to give me open heart surgery, but that probably doesn't mean I trust you to do my taxes. And, you know, trust can be measured in in many ways. We can have broad trust. Um, You know, I could tell you that I trust my dad implicitly, but that's not very actionable, uh, you know, for you. But if I told you that, you know, he was a supply chain expert and, you know, was uh, chairman of the purchasing managers index, that's a little more actionable about, hey, uh, when can I interact with, uh, you know, this, uh, this source or when, when it may be, be helpful, uh, you know, to me. Right. So, you know, context is, is really everything here. And, and that varies greatly um, by, by the user of that, that information. So it's good that we're talking step by step by step yeah. in, in how to get to the point where you are, because it's important not to just grab any data that you have, because you end up with some kind of bias if you're not paying attention to the source, you're not paying attention to uh, which data you're lining up against one, because then you have some kind of relationship that you're assuming. Uh, and if you don't agree from the beginning with everybody else about what is it that we're trying to demonstrate or where are we trying to go with this, you end up sort of comparing apples and oranges and saying, well, this is, this is what's going to help. Um, and, and talking about trust, 
I don't know if credibility and data and trust is exactly the same thing, but that's, that's the next question that I have for you is, is talking about data, credibility. Uh, and it can mean a lot of different things, but for your work and, and what you deal with, talk about data credi credibility. What does it mean for you and how do, we, how do we ensure that the data that you're gathering, that you're using is credible before you start doing anything with it? Well, let's start with the source. And you know, to go to why clinical data can, can be so powerful. Uh, you know, one of the, the lessons I, I learned in you know my called machine learning career was from a friend and advisor. Uh, his name is Henry. Uh, Henry was the first data scientist at Uber, employee number nine or something. And you know, he was the individual who built you know the first surge pricing algorithms, the the first um, asset reallocation algorithms, and in one of our first couple of conversations, he really impressed uh, on me how important it is to use first-party data, and how successful you know they were with you know being able to leverage you know data produced uh, or working with data directly produced close to the you know the source versus third-party aggregate statistics about traffic lights. And to go back to what is clinical data, it's data that's produced in the clinic. And so that is the rawest form that has the most amount of signal in it. And it's identifying those different signals that, that we're looking to create recommendations and, and uh, find ways to, to help people. So the source matters for creating recommendations and understanding what's going on. It also matters for that trust in data and you know, knowing where uh, your food comes from is important. Knowing where your drugs come from is important. And knowing where your data uh, came from is equally important. Dr. Joseph Betancourt is president of the Commonwealth Fund. One of the nation's preeminent leaders in healthcare quality, Dr. Betancourt formerly served as Senior Vice President for Equity and Community Health at Massachusetts General Hospital, overseeing a number of entities, including the Center for Diversity and Inclusion. A prolific author, lecturer, and board-certified internist who focuses on Spanish-speaking and minority populations, Dr. Betancourt is also an Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. This is notable for this interview, as he earned his MPH from Harvard with one of the first classes in the Commonwealth Fund Harvard University Fellowship in Minority Health Policy. And now, years later, he's the president of the Commonwealth Fund. At the 2023 NCQA Health Innovation Summit, he led a session titled Pursuing the North Star, a High-Performing Equitable Healthcare System. And as you're about to hear, increasing diversity among healthcare professionals and rebuilding the trust of historically underserved patients are just two of a myriad of ingredients necessary to right the ship on the journey to health equity. In healthcare, we should be trained and our systems should be prepared to care for anyone from anywhere at any time at a high level. And I think for far too long, we've uh, fallen short in, in that aspiration. We know that for a variety of different reasons, we have not really created a healthcare system that's equitable and meets the needs of all populations. And what I've been arguing to people for years is that the types of things that vulnerable communities need are the types of things that everybody wants and needs. Good engagement, trust, feeling listened to, feeling heard, being able to ask questions. I mean, 
any patient would like that. So as we kind of drive towards doing that for everyone, we believe you know, that will benefit the entire healthcare system. Navigation, healthcare coaching, I mean, there's all these things that we're trying to do, particularly to address disparities in health equity that I would argue are a, a both and. And I think for me and for our patients, being able to see the intersection of clinical, linguistic, and cultural competence coming together mm-hmm. uh, is incredibly uh, reassuring. It's um, it provides, uh, I think, a, a better path. Quite frankly, to um, taking actions, uh, you know, for your health and well-being, and um, you know, being able to understand what healthcare providers are trying to share with you. So, in so many ways, this issue has been the canary in the coal mine that we've kind of let lie for far too long. And so my experience mirrors that. And and I would say for for healthcare professionals like me, we feel that sense of urgency. We feel that sense of responsibility. We we feel like we carry uh, those stories, those needs into healthcare circles like this to to a large conference where we're able to try to bring voice. I still, as a caregiver today, I see patients um, who are not unlike uh, the patients I saw when I was you know, first in medical school, we're facing the same challenges. So we still have a long way to go. The challenges of recognition by the medical staff of, no doubt. of, of who they are and that and then that's a significant factor no doubt. in treating them. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, and, and not just recognizing them, but creating the opportunity for them to really express themselves in ways that healthcare providers can understand and also to understand the types of recommendations healthcare providers are, are sharing. See it as every day is an opportunity to say there's a new generation of healthcare professionals, of clinicians, of of medical schools. Um, I've discussed with guests before, uh, if you had a choice of walking into a medical school and retraining or or talking to the faculty and saying, here's a couple things that have not been done. It's not you. It's just traditionally in medicine and traditionally in training people. Uh, there are a couple things that if you just did these, they would point towards patient uh, outcome-oriented patient care. That's right. And value-based care. And so many things will fall into place if you get there. And so it's communicating with patients as individuals that, that gets you closer to those outcomes. Is it, it close th- to that? That is. And, and, but I think we need to understand that it's, there's, you know, this is a multi-legged stool. It's not just training. It's not just recruiting, uh, you know, healthcare providers of diverse backgrounds. It's also the systems we provide care in. It's also the way we pay for healthcare. It's also the way we regulate and accredit healthcare. I mean, it, it, you know, this is a situation when we think about equity, we talk about improving quality, achieving equity, and increasing value, right? The, the bottom line is fundamentally, if you pull on two strings, that's not enough. We really need to think about the multiple strings we need to be pulling to create a truly equitable healthcare system. Up now, one healthcare company's success story in finding a gap in healthcare equity and nailing down a solid and sustainable solution. Jenna Jansen is the Senior Director of Quality at Wellspan Health. And Jody Cicchetti is Vice President, Quality and Patient Safety at Wellspan Health. Jenna and Jody together presented a session called Stop, Collaborate, and Listen, Improving Equitable Access to Care. In the interview, they told the story of how their research revealed a gap in care delivery using various analytical tools, including NCQA's breast cancer screening measure, part of our HEDIS set of measures. They discovered a disparity among Spanish-speaking patients. This is a story of how to use the data not only to find health equity gaps, but also to make a plan 
take action, and create sustained solutions to resolve those gaps. Here's Jody and Jenna explaining the first step in their strategy, go to the communities for insight and inspiration. As soon as we saw that what we thought to be true was supported by our data, that those who speak, who require an interpreter and who identify as Hispanic or Latino had a lower rate of screening, we then stopped making assumptions and said, we need to go to the people and we need to understand from their perspective, do they believe that this data is true? Why? Uh, what do they perceive about our system? Do they want to receive care from us? Why or why not? And it was an opportunity for us to say, we need to have some humble inquiry here and recognize that I, as a young white female, don't know the perspective of that community because I don't identify as a member of that community. And so thinking back from like the ADA, nothing about us without us, it would be um, wrong for me to make assumptions of how to impact change without asking them. And it's also possible that the issue that you're seeing is it's not that it's part of a broader issue, but that if you go to start going to CBOs, you go to community-based organizations and say, we're having this issue and this is where it came from and this is what we're seeing, and then you stop there, they might say, okay, well, there are five other kinds of professionals that are coming to us in completely different situations that are all running into the same thing, and this is what we did, and this is how we can... And as far as interpretation services, they they might be able to, to help as well to provide interpreters. Is that is that some of what happened next, and what, what other things were you thinking of incorporating into the solution? Yeah. There was also just the basic element of communication. So again, like stepping back and understanding the broader picture. So do these women even know what resources are available? And are those resources and communications being provided in a way that um, they can understand it at the level of, of um, education or background that they come from? So that had to be considered also. When we went in, we, we started with a community listening model. Uh, so we have very strong community partnerships within our organization with our CBOs. Mm -hmm. And we asked them, would you be willing to share with us to gather a group of individuals and, and let us listen? And they all said yes. And so we hosted these community listening sessions. And again, that humble inquiry. And so we learned a lot. Surprise, if you ask people, they'll, they'll tell you. Um, there were a lot of cultural uh, differences. So how some of these specific communities uh, determine cancer. So they think of cancer, some identify as cancer as God's will. And that they didn't want to know because the outcome for them didn't matter because that was God's will. Um, so being able to just understand that before, it was like, why wouldn't people want to have mammograms? Of course you want to be screened early. Well, that's, that's not true for everybody. Um, so being able to hear from them and then have dialogue. Uh, there was a lot of misconceptions about what the process is like, um, what results could mean. And so hearing that and being able to have truly conversations about it, I think initially that just strengthened our relationship with um, our community members and then being humble enough when they, when they shared what things were challenging and what barriers we as an organization unintentionally had in place that made it hard for them to access. Um, for us to be able to then go back and implement those changes was really important. 
So just talking about the Spanish language interpreters, who did you put in the room with the patients then? Were they, were they medical staff? Were you seek? Did you necessarily need to have somebody who was a clinician and was bilingual to put in there? Or did they, uh, did they meaning the community-based organizations that you worked with, did they say, you know, you just need someone in there as an intermediary uh, to translate because I, I don't know which situation is more unnerving for a patient is is it if you can't if you're limited in how much staff you can actually have who's available to help or is it unnerving for somebody to come in and here's the patient here's the doctor and then you have somebody in between who has to interpret so Wellspring it feels has, it could be feel less personal I, I just don't know that's what I'm asking yeah we we have a really robust interpreter services program so uh, the challenge for and what the feedback that we got from the community listening model is not that having the interpreter present is part of the barrier um, the challenge was do indivi do individuals know that they need breast cancer screening uh, why are they maybe not even coming into our primary care practices? So we know that you're a patient of ours, but we haven't seen you in a certain amount of time. Why aren't you coming in um, to even be able to place that order for that screening? During the specific community listening sessions, uh, our partners did tell us that having individuals in the room from Wellspan who look like them and speak their language was very meaningful. And if, it, if we didn't have, say, a Spanish-speaking female physician who was able to do that, having people from their community organization that they trusted be a partner with us in sharing that information was really valuable. Christopher J. King is the inaugural dean of the School of Health and former chair of the Department of Health Systems Administration at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., an academic administrator, associate professor, and strategist who is board certified in healthcare, Dr. King's writing and teaching focus on the intersection of institutional racism, social determinants of health, and healthcare administration. And he envisions a world in which health status cannot be predicted by race, social class, or place of residence. At this year's NCQA Health Innovation Summit, Dr. King joined the dais in a session titled No Quality Without Equity. In this clip from our interview, Dr. King talks about race-based clinical data in healthcare. And in his view, the use of this data is doing more harm than good. You've warned audiences to exercise caution when interpreting data by race. I'd say I'm surprised to, to hear that. So let me ask you, can you speak more about this? And what do you see as the harm that's been institutionalized oh, in God. our industry. It goes so deep. It, David, it's so deep. And it's even happening today. It's 2023. And we still see race being used as a key driver for clinical decision making. Well, we know that race is a social construct. It's a social construct. But if you look at the history and the conception of race, you understand. You understand why it is so deeply, deeply seated in the institution of medicine. And because of that, it's, it's really hard to kind of just do away with it. We have to be very intentional about this. And so, yes, we do need to continue to collect data by race and ethnicity because that helps us identify where the problems are and populations are not getting the best care or the services they need. We still need to do that. 
But we need to be very careful with what we're doing with that data when we capture it. Yeah. Because people know, the community has told us this. I've interviewed thousands and thousands of people about their healthcare experiences, and they just don't trust the system. They think that when I check the box that I am a black male, I am going to receive a very different, I'm going to have a very different experience than my white male counterpart. Whether it's real or perceived, that's what people think. And so we have to, when we collect data by race, it's important for us to be able to articulate to patients why this information is important and what we are doing about it. And what you're doing with it. Right. What we're doing with it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So again, it's a social construct. Yeah. You know, and even, you know, in, in many peer-reviewed journals, even today, you will see vestiges of how race is still being perceived as a key influencer in how you treat a patient. And again, it's very easy to do that. You yeah. just, our brains, we, you put a person in a classification and then you can make a decision. It's easy for our brains to like, to, 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 for our brains to process that. But that's a very oversimplified approach. We are dynamic, very complex humans, right? Yeah. And so in order to best meet the needs of the patient, we have to demonstrate humility. And I talk about cultural competence. That's another piece of the paradigm shift. Going from cultural competence to cultural humility. Humility means I'm sitting before you, David. You are a very unique person with a unique lived experience. I cannot make assumptions about you just because of what I see, right? And so each provider needs to bring that to the table. <laughs> that needs to be normalized in how we treat people, how we engage people, how we interact with people. And not think, oh, just because you're a white male or just because you're Jewish or just because you are a member of the LGBTQ community, yeah. that this is how I need to treat you. And right. that's what cultural competence, unfortunately, has done for so long. And I think it, it's harmed uh, populations. As we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we ask now for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime, and be sure to include Inside Healthcare, those words, in the subject line. If you're coming up empty, here's our question for this episode. What's the most recent idea you've learned in how to connect with community-based organizations? And if you have a comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on our show, Maybe you'd like to be that guest. Just email us and let us know. Communications at ncqa.org. That's how to find me. Be sure to write inside healthcare, those words in the subject line. Hope to hear from you soon. And that's it for episode 117 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks for joining us. This episode's done, but there are plenty that came before it for you to explore and investigate. You can find us at blog.ncqa.org or find us on any Apple or Google streaming app. And whether you download the show or you stream it, if you find us, then follow us and spread the word. Help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. If you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter. You'll get video promos for this show to share with your friends and colleagues. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar, almost live from the second annual Health Innovation Summit here in Orlando, Florida. And we'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, 
a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.